You're listening to Conversation with the Experts, a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. Hi, my name is Tania Ramos and I'm one of the clinical nurse educators at the Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub. My role is in the education outreach program, providing perioperative education to clinicians across the state. Clinically, I continue to work as a clinical nurse specialist in the recovery room. Joining me today is our Deputy Director of Anesthesia, the wonderful Dr. Philip Bragg. He joins us today really to discuss perhaps one of the most requested topics in outreach education and at times the most controversial, which is on pediatric fasting for anesthesia and surgery. Um, So Phil, I'm so excited that you're here today with us to discuss fasting. Thank you, Tanya. I am too. Excellent. Well, I want to actually start at the very beginning and I just want to start it really, really simple. Why do we fast children for anesthesia? That's a very good question and it's not as simple as you think. Yeah. (laughs) So... The underlying reason we fast adults or children is because we want to reduce the consequences of regurgitation and potential aspiration, knowing that when we anesthetize or sedate children, we reduce their protective airway reflexes. Yeah, absolutely. For instance, you don't aspirate usually when you're asleep um, because you still have protective airway reflexes, although we do realize now that small babies, believe it or not, probably do aspirate small volumes of breast milk. But we fast to reduce the volume of the gastric contents so that if regurgitation or aspiration does occur, it's unlikely to result in a bad outcome. Yeah. And the bad outcomes would be? Aspiration. Yeah. And pneumonitis. Yeah. And, Yeah. uh, And there's been lots of work showing that you're more likely to have a bad outcome if you aspirate particulate matter, so solids or food. Yes. Uh, highly acidic gastric acid, and large volumes of fluid. So fasting is absolutely... So the short answer, actually, is Mm -hmm. fasting is designed to reduce the volume of gastric contents that might result in bad outcomes. Yeah, and there there are some children, you sort of touched on the neonatal population, but there are some children who are at higher risk of potentially aspirating. And what other um, kind of patient populations would you see that are at a higher risk? Yes. So there are children with some syndromes that have delayed gastric emptying. There are children that are on medications. And we now know that some of the uh, new anti-diabetic medications, Mm -hmm. the uh, oral uh, hypoglycemic agents, uh, delay gastric emptying. Uh, Patients that have bowel obstruction or um, limited motility in their gut uh, are at higher risk as well. Um, So, And and very stressed patients um, are at high risk. Yeah, anxiety uh, we, does really contribute to absolutely. it, doesn't it? And we include in that patients that have got a lot of pain. So traditionally, mm-hmm. if you had a major trauma uh, or you were in a lot of pain, then you, we know that your gastric motility is reduced. And so we used to talk about the uh, uh, fasting to injury time yeah. uh, as the critical uh, critical time interval because mm-hmm. we know that the stomach probably stops working um, as soon as you get that stress response. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's um, so important. And obviously, you know, now that we've had that explanation from, from you, we know that fasting is really important for patient safety. It decreases, you know, if we fast properly, it decreases hopefully adverse outcomes, but it can be really challenging to fast a child and an adolescent. Can you take us through some of those challenges? Absolutely. So there are, there are psychological mm-hmm. issues 
Um, nobody likes to be fasted. Yeah. Nobody likes to be hungry or thirsty. Yeah. And it can uh, be really dis- distressing absolutely. for, for in a parent's point of view, can it? Like my baby's crying. I know they're hungry. I really want to feed my baby. Yes. And, and, and we'll probably come to that a little bit later on, mm-hmm. but uh, it's such a problem that in fact, we know from some studies that up to 30% of parents and carers mm-hmm. uh, didn't follow our instructions because they were so distressed by the fact that their child was so distressed. Yeah. So we had up to 30% of our patients potentially unfasted. Yeah. But that that psychological prob- problem I- is real. And yeah. um, and the younger you are, the, it, it, the more difficult it is to explain to a child that there are good reasons why we don't like you to eat and drink before you have an operation. And I want to tell you a story now that you said about 30% of patients perhaps being not fasted appropriately. This happened to both you and I a number of years ago, and you probably won't remember because it was one of those really quick stories. But Basically, what occurred was I was working on a weekend. You came on and checked the patient in before I had a chance to do a pre-op check. Then you said, yep, all good to go, Tan. I'll be back in 10 minutes. Then I've come in to do my pre-op check and asked the mum about, um, you know, the fasting status. And then she said, oh, look, I told the lovely gentleman that we were fasted, but I really didn't want to tell him. I just, I felt so bad. I gave him a couple of chicken nuggets before we came up. I remember when I went to you and said, they're not fasted, that mum snuck in a couple of chicken nuggets. You just couldn't believe it. And she just, you know, she didn't want to make you upset, but she was happy to tell me perhaps, you know, she knew that it was important, but didn't really have a full understanding of, I guess, the ramifications of that patient not being fasted properly. Yes, absolutely, Tan. I I, I do remember that story. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and and that highlights a couple of things, doesn't mm-hmm. it? The importance of the double check. Yeah. So both, you know, you and I, both, uh, both going through that checklist, because sometimes you trigger a memory sometime after you've left the patient. And so they then remember to tell the next person who asks the same questions. These audits have shown mm-hmm. in this 30% that were potentially unfasted. And can I just add, I don't think that's the case now. I think yeah. because of our more liberal fasting guidelines, mm-hmm. I think we've significantly reduced that. But the other thing we hadn't appreciated was that children are very good at sneaking things without the so parents true. knowing. And so a couple of these audits uh, included the potential for children to be able to sneak food or drinks without the parents knowing. And yep. uh, and so the the incidence of 30% might even be higher. Be higher than that. Wow. So. Um, and so, we, you know, we've kind of discussed unhappy child yes, family. the psychological the things. The psychological things. And um, what are some of the other yes, challenges? And, and the, other, the other challenges are physiological. Yep. And so we know that the longer a child is fasted, uh, the more likely they are to be a bit dehydrated. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and potentially uh, hypoglycemic and even ketotic. Yeah. Um, and and the younger the child, the more likely this is to be the case, and that'll have implications for anaesthesia induction. Um, if a child is dehydrated or potentially hypoglycemic, then they're more likely to become hypotensive and have issues with anaesthesia induction. Yeah, and also, I guess, um, you know, a being an anesthetic uh, assistant would be maybe even finding a drip with IV access can be a lot more challenging. Absolutely. So, yeah. so uh, lo- lots of physiological consequences mm-hmm. of having a child unnecessarily fasted for too yeah. long. And Phil, before we go and talk actually about clinical practice guideline, um, you briefly touched on, you know, um, the hypoglycemia. And I know that you've done um, a study that's, you know, been undertaken here at RCH, or we've called we've call it the sugar study. Uh, but can you take um, our listeners through that and maybe um, discuss some of the findings? We, we've always known that the small babies um, from neonates to about six months of age are probably more likely 
to be at risk of hypoglycemia. And so we've been fairly uh, active in promoting any you know any option to give them breast breast milk or or keep them. Um, fasted for the least amount of time. We yep. always put those babies first on the list. For instance, Correct. we tell the parents to actually give the child a feed at a specific time in the morning, such as 5am. Yeah. And so we've always been mindful of that age group. Yeah. We've w- been a little bit concerned about the older infants though, the mm-hmm. six, to, six to 12 monthers, um, because they've, they've been a bit neglected. You know, yeah. once you're over six months, we've thought you're probably not as much risk. Yeah. Of, you're a uh, bit more robust. A bit more robust, mm-hmm. correct. But we've had a couple of anecdotal reports here at the children's of children that have rocked up in that age group that have had a blood sugar um, and the blood sugar has been surprisingly low. Yeah. So we decided to study that age group, uh, the six to 12 month infants. We didn't control for their fasting. Mm-hmm. We just used our normal fasting guidelines and we did actually compare the fasting guidelines from three pediatric hospitals. Yeah. And what we discovered was that one, despite our fairly liberal fasting guidelines, most infants are fasted for much longer than we recommend. Yeah, that's so true. And we did note note that about 3%, so, you know, not an insignificant number of infants in that age group were uh, significantly hypoglycemic. That is, they had a blood sugar that we would consider treating yeah. before we actually did anything else. And treating with a bolus of dextrose. Yeah, treating yeah. with either some oral, mm-hmm. um, some oral dextrose-containing fluid, mm-hmm. or pe- perhaps even putting in an intravenous, or perhaps starting some uh, some intravenous dextrose-containing int- uh, fluids uh, at induction. Do you think that this, um, you know, some, this finding obviously like can be translated even to the older, you know, older group? Because we often do get children who, although we have a clear criteria, maybe they've presented, you know, to St. Elsewhere, then present to RCH and, you know, they've been fasted. Some places that we provide education will still do pediatric fasting from midnight. And then children do tend to be quite dehydrated and they appear hypoglycemic. And yeah. often we do find that they've got um, low blood sugars. Quite possibly, Tan, mm-hmm. and, and I think we we may see you know continued research in this area, and and that that was certainly our conclusion from our studies that we really need to look more closely at this for all ages. Yeah, um, do we need to yeah routinely test for mm-hmm. blood sugar preoperatively? Do we need to be way more aggressive in in pushing fluids and um, uh, and potentially dextrose uh, preoperatively? Yeah, but certainly. The older child, we've always assumed that the stress response of surgery mm-hmm. will be enough to maintain their the blood sugar. sugar, but there are so many unanswered questions and, and yep. uh, the more research we do, the, the, the more things we're finding. Yeah, and, so, and more questions that are being... more questions that are needing to be answered. Yeah. Exactly. Prior to maybe, I want to say maybe five or six years ago, we were still fasting children uh, for clear fluids two hours prior to anesthesia and surgery. Um, That's obviously changed. And can you take us through the time and why that's changed? Yes. And and I would even add to that, that uh, you're quite right from 2000, since 2019, we've Mm -hmm. become more liberal with our clear fluids and we were two hours at that point. But there were still many, many hospitals, including paediatric hospitals, that were fasting for clear fluids for a lot longer than that. Yeah. So even the two-hour guideline was really quite radical. Yeah, um, that's and, so true. And, and we, we have always been the pace setters in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've had a two-hour clear fluid fasting guideline for probably 10 years. But in 2019, on the basis of the fact that there'd been some very good um, publications, mainly out of Scandinavia, mm-hmm where 
a lot of the hospitals in Scandinavia, paediatric hospitals in Scandinavia, had a policy of letting the ch- children drink until they were called to the preoperative hold. Yeah. And when they audited over 10,000 cases in one landmark paper uh-huh. uh, at, from Uppsala University, they found that the incidence of regurgitation and aspiration was almost zero and that they wow. had no significant events. And um, and we'd always thought that anyway. Yeah. And most of us at the children's hospital weren't that fussed about clear fluids up into up into an hour. Yeah. Um, Mainly because we know that the transit time of clear liquids through the stomach is so fast that that it's pretty much all gone within about twenty minutes, half an hour. Yeah. And so, um, so in two thousand and nineteen, on the basis of this paper and and some other research that was coming out, we agreed that clear fluids, uh, liquids, actually mm-hmm. are uh, quite safe, and that we would actually not only relax our guidelines to one hour, but in fact offer fluids yeah. if the children had been significantly fasted uh, when they arrived in yeah. the pre-op hold. And as I said, that's one of the things, you know, as a, a perioperative educator that I get asked um, a lot about is our fluid guidelines, because even though, you know, um, the information's out there and there's lots of re- research that has been undertaken, people are still fasting children from midnight or, you know, we've had, um, I've been out to, to, you know, different regional rural places where a child might be fasting, you know, for 14, 16 hours prior to having maybe grommets undertaken. And then obviously that has a whole barrage of, you know, things that will occur for that child and family a, a little bit later on. You're quite right. And in fact, a lot of the adult hospitals are still uh, quite restrictive in yeah, their clear fluids and, and are, are quite surprised at how liberal we are in paediatrics. But we don't. You don't have to look too far. You mentioned sort of rural hospitals, etc. Mm-hmm. You be you might be surprised to know that we had departments in our own hospital that used to insist on very very long fasting times for their patients. For their patients, and I don't want to. I don't <laughs> want to pick on. The you don't want to name. <laughs> I don't want to name the specialty. Yeah. yeah. But their argument was, mm-hmm. if one hour is good for fasting, then mm-hmm. ten hours would be better. Better. <laughs> and we pointed out to them that that in in fact is a very is a false statement. Yeah. Because if you fast a child for 10 hours, we know that the stomach continues to produce acid. So you will have an, a stomach full of a yeah. reasonable amount of highly acidic fluid after 10 hours. But if you're allowed a drink yeah. one hour ago, that mm-hmm. acid environment is washed through into the through. small bowel yeah. and the clear liquid has been absorbed. Um, and so your volume in your stomach is much less and much less acidic. Yeah. So, so in fact, so in fact, it's, it's, to better outcomes. it's a false, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a false premise that yeah. the longer that you fast, the better it is from a, from a, a gastric volume. So going back now, Phil, to clear fluids, what would you consider and what does RCH recommend is a flu- clear fluid? That's an excellent question. Look, I might even just mm-hmm. say we changed our guidelines about two years ago uh, and changed the word fluid yeah. to liquid. Liquid, yes. And the reason for that is uh, some very enterprising nurses, believe it or not, pointed out to us that jelly is a fluid. Yeah. If you put it on a slope, it will slide down the slope. That's true. It is clear <laughs> and it is a fluid. Yeah. But we don't recommend jelly one hour preoperatively because we don't know what the protein content is of some of these uh, gelatins. They're, so we we're a little bit nervous about them. Yeah. So we changed the, our, our guidelines to liquids, to clear liquids. And, and our definition of a clear liquid uh, is anything that if you hold it up to the light, you can actually see through it 
and it doesn't contain particle. So yep. it would include water, pulp-free juices. Yes. It would include cordial. Mm -hmm. uh, it would include carbonated soft drinks. Mm -hmm. Such uh, as lemonade. Such yep. as lemonade. It wouldn't be my first choice, no. but, but there are some sports products out there that have more food acid in them than mm. um, than Coca-Cola. So, yeah. And we wouldn't restrict Gatorade, for instance, but that's probably just as bad yeah. um, uh, from a calories and mm -hmm. a high sugar content point of view. But yes, yeah, so carbonated uh, soft drinks are okay. And the carbonation mm. is another controversial area. There's been some question about whether the carbonation delays gastric emptying. There's been no evidence that it actually makes any difference. So yeah. we're happy for carbonated drinks. Having said that, we know that some icy poles, mm -hmm. particularly the RCH approved icy pole, which is basically sucrose, glucose, and water. Yeah, that has uh, no gelatin. Has no gelatin in it, has no uh, real protein in it. And if you allow it to melt, it's a completely clear liquid, um, would be perfectly okay. And in fact, recently we have, uh, we have been allowing children to have uh, a hospital approved icy pole. Yeah. And it uh, makes for a positive experience, I guess, for children prior to having their anesthetic and their surgery, you know, just sitting there. Um, having an icy pole or having a little bit of apple juice, it kind of, you know, some parents look at you with, you know, pure dread in their eye when you go and give a child a little cup of, you know, apple juice, because probably they were used to, if they had surgery themselves, they were used to midnight fasting as well. It, it just makes it so much more of a bit, bit more of a pleasant experience, doesn't it? Absolutely. Um, and I wanted to ask you too, in regards to fasting, and this is one of the questions I guess I get asked lots and lots when I go out on the road, but also we get lots of phone calls from the ward nurses here at RCH calling down, just asking about oral med medication. So some people think if you're fasting, you're fasting off everything. You can't have uh, regular medications. And obviously we know being a recovery nurse and obviously you being an anaesthetist that we need the children to have the, the regular medications that they are on. Can you take us through how we would administer regular medications to children that still require them prior to anaesthetic? Absolutely, Tanya. And this is a question we get asked all the time. Yep. Um, we are completely comfortable with children having a sip of water with their medications yep. up to 20 minutes before uh, their scheduled uh, surgery. Yeah, brilliant. So... Um, back, getting back to the clear liquids, we do limit the volume of clear liquids mm -hmm. within that hour before mm -hmm. uh, anaesthesia to three mils per kilo, yeah. um, but we are very happy for sips um, to be uh, consumed with medications uh, up to 20 minutes before we would start. Yeah, so, perfect. Um, but but the, usual, the usual regime would be, I guess... Um, we would tell the tell the parents to take all their morning medications when they have their drink about an hour before we would start. Yeah, perfect. Just in regards to thickened fluids, because thickened fluids normally have a gelatin component or a protein component to that. That am I right in saying that that's not really a clear fluid? It's not really a clear fluid under our definition at the moment. Mm -hmm. We're looking at those things at the moment. Um, yep. And in four years' time, we, we might relax our guidelines on thickeners. But yep. we, at the moment, we because we we don't know, you know, what their, what their content is and uh, or the implications for gastric emptying and absorption, we're, we're saying no thickeners at this point. And you may get to it in a second, but the mm -hmm. other big group is the formulas uh, yes. for small babies. Yep. And we've been a little bit restrictive in, in older infants having formulas mm -hmm. until now because yep. we, we realise uh, that they do vary in their content. 
There's mm-hmm. different whey and casein ratios and so different amounts of protein yeah. um, and different absorption rates. But some very good recent ultrasound uh, work has shown that we probably have been a little bit harsh on formula uh, and baby's formula feeding. And we may be relaxing those guidelines um, very soon because we know that formula gets absorbed very quickly in that age group. I've just got here that for children less of six months of age, if they're breastfed, allow them to have a breastfeed three hours prior to anesthesia. And if they're um, bottle fed or formula fed, they would be four hours. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. And for children greater than six months, how long do we have to fast them from in terms of food? Yes, good question. So uh, I assume you mean formula and breast milk. Yeah, um, and 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 yeah. food and food right. for the, the older children. To, to, to summarize, to summarize, all ages, mm-hmm. at all ages, you can have clear fluids for one hour. Yeah, before. perfect. For all ages, you can have solids. Yep. For six hours. Yeah. It's the it's the breast milk and the formula That's group different. in the middle that are different, yeah. and you're quite right. In babies under six months, we allow breast milk up to three hours before mm-hmm. surgery and formula up to four hours. And that's based on some very good research. Um, breast milk is quite interesting in that it, its constitution changes as the mother continues to breastfeed. It's quite watery when the yeah. baby's born and it thickens up as the, as the baby gets a little- Gets older. Uh, gets older. For the babies over six months of age, they mm-hmm. can now have a breastfeed up to four hours yeah. before surgery. Formula- we're still not sure yep. in that older age group because there's so much variation in the formulas, as I mentioned. So, yep. so yep. the numbers are a little yep. confusing, but let's, so for under six months, we've got one hour for clear fluids, mm-hmm. three hours for breast milk, four hours for formula, and under six months, you wouldn't have solids. Yeah. But we do put it there. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, there are some cultures and some uh, socioeconomic groups that uh, do allow uh, solids in under the six months. I was being told the other day that some uh, cultures actually allow pulped fruits uh, under six months of age. So, yeah. And so, you will find that the standards so- have changed for babies in Australia, that um, yes. they're now being fed from, you know, pureed um, solids from uh, four months. Okay. Yeah. So that's the under six months. And over six months, we've got one hour clear fluids, mm-hmm. four hours for breast milk, and six hours for solids and any other milk products, including formula and cow's milk. Yeah, perfect. What kind of special considerations would we have in regards to fasting in uh, children who have diabetes? Blood sugar control is more critical in that group because obviously they've demonstrated that that it is a problem. Mm-hmm. I guess the first thing we would say is where possible, we would always put those children first on the operating list. Yeah to minimize their duration of fasting. Um, and if they are on oral hypoglycemic agents, we would definitely stop those mm-hmm. in the morning, yeah. uh, knowing that they're fasted and they're probably more likely to become hypoglycemic yeah. if they have the combination of fasting and low blood sugars. So first on the list, withhold their medication, plan to give their medication as soon as the operation is finished with their first oral intake, as they would when they wake up in Mm -hmm. the morning and and have breakfast. And the other thing we're mindful of is there's a a group of diabetic patients that do have delayed gastric emptying. Mm -hmm. Um, And we, uh, so we, we would have a lower threshold to be mindful of the fact that they might be at a higher risk of regurgitation and and aspiration. Yeah. Um, But as a rule... 
children with diabetes uh, are usually fairly um, easily managed and uh, and usually have very very few complications. The last group I guess that I want to ask you about is those children who present for, you know, time critical surgery or emergency procedures where fasting may be unknown. Maybe they were, you know, involved in a motor vehicle accident. They're here on their own. Um, and obviously there are those considerations that you spoke about, that stress response. What are some of the considerations for children who are unfasted? Yes, very, very, this is a, probably the group that I get the most number of phone calls about every mm-hmm. day. Uh, as do our in charge team, our yep. nurses and uh, and anaesthetists and technicians. The patients that uh, are having emergency surgery will have a variable uh, degree of delayed gastric emptying. Most children will not have delayed gastric emptying. So unless you have a bowel obstruction or an acute abdomen or a long bone fracture with incredible pain, um, right. that it's likely that your gastric emptying won't be reduced. And so for a lot of emergency surgery, we, our, our instructions are to let the child continue to have clear liquids until we call you to come to theatre. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's based on the fact that we know, we know that their gastric emptying is likely to be normal and yeah. that the, uh, the predicted time until we operate is, is incredibly variable and can be quite long. And so we've we've all experienced the situation where a child has been cancelled for two or three days in a row just because of other emergencies, and so yeah. they've been fasted for incredibly long period periods of time, which is just not fair on the child yeah. um, and not safe for the child. So we so we most emergencies, unless we identify that the the, the stomach is likely to be affected, and that there are those other conditions that I mentioned, mm-hmm. we would allow the child to uh, what we call sip till yep. send. And that's Love a new that. guideline that mm-hmm. we're actually going to do some education yep. uh, with our ward nurses mm-hmm. and our preoperative nurses in the in the next few mm-hmm. months. And you'll be leading that town, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> so, so, but I like the sip till send yep. for the emergency patients, yep. unless there is a, another reason to be nil by mouth or mm-hmm. to... Um, you know, to, to not have uh, anything orally. And those patients, I might add, if we do identify those patients who are at risk, uh, we would probably put up an intravenous line and make sure that the children are well hydrated yeah, with, uh, with intravenous fluids. Yeah, perfect. And I guess as we wrap up today, I just wanted to ask of you, what are your take-home messages when it comes to fasting? The first thing I would say is that Fasting is a very unpleasant experience for children and their carers and is usually unnecessary for long periods of time. Absolutely. Uh, The second point I would make is we know that despite our liberal guidelines, we actually look at how long children are fasted. It's much longer than that. So if we allowed fluids up until one hour before surgery, when we audited it, we found that it was more likely three or four hours before, since their last drink. Wow. And that's for lots of reasons. It's yep. because they didn't feel like a drink when they first got up. Mm-hmm. And so by the time they got to the hospital, it was too late. Right. Or the fluid that they were offered wasn't something that they liked. Yeah. Lots of reasons yep. why. Change the, of order in the list. Change of yep. order in the list, all those things. And so, so there are lots of reasons why the actual fasting time is much longer. So I guess my take-home message would be, uh, to, to people looking after children, offer children liquids when they arrive in the hospital. Yep. 
Okay. Perfect. And let's look to push fluids to make sure that these children are given the opportunity to to have something to drink and not be fasted unnecessarily with the consequent psychological and physiological consequences that we talked about. Perfect. Thank you so much, Phil. I know that our listeners are going to be super empowered to hopefully fast children for a lot less than what we're currently doing all over the state, but also we get a number of listeners that, um, you know, from overseas as well. So thank you so much. It's been my absolute pleasure, Tan. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Conversation with the Experts, part of the Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast series. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, check out our other podcast show, Teach, Think, Treat.